Welcome to what we humbly submit may be the most empowering show on the radio dial, the show that proves you don't have to settle for your life the way it is. You can do the things you love, you can face your challenges head on, and you can start down the path that leads to living the life you've always wanted. Of course, it's called Growing Bolder. I'm Mark Middleton. That's Bill Schaefer. We're a couple of inquisitive and curious journalists who challenge you by seeking out the opinions and experiences of renowned experts, best-selling authors, and ordinary people that are living extraordinary lives. Inquisitive and curious? Yeah, they go together, I think. Nice. You know, Growing Boulder is a radio show, a TV show, a magazine, a website, all which offer you hope, inspiration, and possibility. How about that? In the next hour, the amazing comeback story of country star Mickey Gilly. And we'll talk to a woman who witnessed the murder-suicide of her parents but overcame that to become Oprah's life coach. And then a woman whose list of 50 life's lessons went flying up the bestseller list. And we'll listen in on why some women over 50 are turning heads by turning to boudoir photography. We've got amazing people and amazing stories. It's time for Growing Bolder. When the night has come And the land is done and the moon is the only light we'll see one of the greatest songs ever this is growing bolder with mark and bill it was 1980 when this country version of the soul classic stand by me was released it was in the hit movie of course urban cowboy starring john travolta and you know what that was based on totally on our next guest. It would change the course of his career because instead of just being a country star, it allowed him to make the move to crossover success. No small feat for a guy who had 17 number one hits in the country charts, his own star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, and a theater of his own in Branson. Yeah, and what an unbelievable voice. But there is another part of his incredible story that is just now being written. It is so powerful that it makes this our surviving and thriving interview, folks, because after being paralyzed in a totally unforeseen accident, he is about to go back on the road and perform in concert, which is something that many thought would never happen again. We're very excited to spend a few minutes talking about it with one very cool dude, the one and only Mickey Gilly. Hey, Mickey, how are you? Hey, it's a pleasure to be on the show with you, and I got to tell you what, what a great ride I've had in in the industry, you know? Uh, Stand by me. I heard you playing a little piece of it there. And what a great arrangement my uh, producer, Jim Ed Norman, did on that song. I had no idea what it was going to do for my career, but it launched me and Johnny Lee uh, when the film come out of the Urban Cowboy into the stratosphere. You, you know, Mickey, I love you already, and we've never met. And what I love about you is the passion in your voice. You still are grooving on life. Uh, you're, you're a happy guy, aren't you? Hey, you know, at 78, just what I've been through, I've, I've been through heart surgery, brain surgery, two airplane crashes, my appendix bursted in the hospital five days. And after all of that uh, and my back surgery, I had paralyzed from the neck down for three months and couldn't move. I still try to keep a positive attitude, and I've changed my diet now. I'm eating nine laps cat food. <laughs> <laughs> Gee, Mickey, there's got to be a downside to the uh, to your life as well, huh? <laughs> well, uh, you know what? Uh, I'm feeling pretty good. I'm, I'm up walking now. I didn't find out uh, at first when I fell and I was paralyzed. I didn't find out for a few months later by talking to some of the nurses that worked on me. And they said, uh, Mr. Gilly, we thought that, uh, according to the doctors, you were never supposed to walk again. You're just going to be consigned to a wheelchair the rest of your life. I said, well, 
my goal now is to get back on the golf course in the spring and play piano in the fall. Wow. So, so take us back to that day in 2009, Mickey. Obviously, we know you fell. You had some issues. What happened? I played golf all day long, and uh, at that time, I was 74 years old. I felt like I was nine foot tall and bulletproof. A friend of mine asked me if I'd hit me move a little uh, love seat that weighed about 40 to 50 pounds. I picked up one end, he picked up the other, and I backed out of the doorway, stepped in a flower bed, I fall backwards. I woke up two days later. I had a neck brace on in the hospital in Springfield, Missouri, and I couldn't move. I was paralyzed. Uh, I went through a, a, a rehab down in Houston, Texas at Tier. And uh, they worked on me for about six months. I finally got some movement in my, my legs and my arms. And I'm back up walking now. And uh, like I said, I'm looking forward to getting back on the golf course and playing the piano in the fall. And not just on the golf course, up back in the tour bus and, and traveling the country again, Mickey. Why, why put yourself through that at 78? Well, i got to tell you that, you know, at, at my age, at 78 years old, and when I see people like uh, George Street saying they're going to retire in their 50s, I'm thinking... Where is the passion for the music and the people that have brought you to where, you, where you're at in your career? Why give it up now, you know? I, I'm going to stay in the business as long as I can. Uh, I'm going to try to follow my friend Ray Price and George Jones. I'll probably drop on the stage somewhere because I have a passion for the music. I love doing what I do. And when I go on the stage and I start doing my songs and the people start singing along with me, it warms my heart. I don't mind telling you. Sometimes it even brings a tear to my eye. When I do stand by me and the people sometimes give me a standing ovation, it's all I can do to hold it in. Man. Uh, you know, Mickey, we want to talk about your passion for music and how it is expressing itself these days. But if I can, I want to go back to your passion for life for a moment because after you described what happened to you, you know, Bill and I have talked to a lot of doctors, a lot of people. Uh, you know, the statistics of people that take a serious fall after the age of 65 who never get off the couch again, never get out of the hospital again, is stunning. Now, you were 74 when it happened, and you're not only off the couch. Uh, I mean, you're out there, uh, you know, pitching and hitting at the same time. Oh, absolutely. I've been in Nashville now for, uh, this is my third day. I've been on, on the telephone. I've been on TV. I've been telling the people, you know, I'm back. Don't give, don't give up on me. I'm out there performing again, and uh, I'm having a blast. I'm having more fun now than I did when I was having the hits in the 80s. I talked to my producer that produced all those hits for me from Stand By Me all the way up to Food For Your Love when I did uh, those things back in the 80s. And I said, you know what? We had some great music back in, uh, in the time we was making all those albums and things. And I found a song, and I said, any chance you might get Sony to reissue a couple of things on, on Mickey Gilly? And he said, I'll talk to him. And I can remember back when I was uh, working with him, and I, I said, you know, I would probably had a bigger career if I hadn't been on the party circuit so much, you know. And he would ask me, he said, can you come in at 10 o'clock in the morning to sing? And I said, hey, I don't get to throwing up till noon. <laughs> wow. <laughs> we are talking to the humorous, talented, funny, cool Mickey Gilly. Mickey, when you went through your thing at 74, you know what happens a lot. It's not just you wanting to come back. Sometimes the audience goes, well, this guy's out of the, you know, he's out of it now. Let's move on and, and follow somebody else. But your fans never left. They stayed with me. And you know what? Uh, I, I could not believe when I, when I got the two girls on each side of me and they walked me out on the stage at my theater in Branson, Missouri. And I sat down in the chair to start my performance. And who was in the audience? The late and great Andy Williams. Wow. And if that don't motivate you to get up and start moving, nothing's going to do it. And I'm thinking, here, here's a guy that's one of the biggest stars that ever came on the music scene. And he was sitting in my theater, listening to me come back and make my comeback move on the stage. And I'm, I, wow. 
You know, we did one of the last interviews ever with uh, with Andy, and he sang Moon River on this program. Uh, yeah, he, he really is a great guy. Uh, you know, one of the coolest things about you is, is this whole urban cowboy concept. Uh, you know, I think you could make a point that, that you were at least partly responsible for making country music cool because, you know, now we're all into it. Well, you know, when John Travolta came down to do that film at Gillies in Pasadena, Texas, it didn't dawn on me at the time that when he did that film, he came off a Saturday Night Fever. And, you know, the Urban Cowboy, all it was was a country night fever. But he introduced country music to a younger generation, and it made country music cool. And when that happened, that's what launched everything into the stratosphere as far as me and Johnny was concerned. Because Stand By Me was not a country song. It was an old Benny King tune, you know, an old bluesy type song written by Lieber and Stoller. And all of a sudden, you know, I'm out there. Johnny Lee had the biggest song, Looking for Love in All the Wrong Places. And uh, it just, uh, we, we went uh, in the stratosphere with our career. Urban Cowboy was cool, Mickey, because you're cool. And I want to have a little bit in a bottle of what it is that keeps you going. Can you, can you give us a takeaway? Can you tell us what it is when you wake up in the morning that makes you want to greet the day? You know what? I think it's a passion for the music. I, I, uh, I, I try to think positive. I try to I stay in a positive mode. And uh, uh, I, I love doing what I do. I don't do it for the money. I do it because I enjoy the music. And uh, when I see people like George Strait and, and Garth Brooks saying, well, I'm going to quit or I'm going to do this, you know, I'm thinking, where is the passion? Well, you know, the people put you out there, go out there and do the music for the folks. And that's what it's all, to me, it's what it's really all about. You know, Mickey, I, I know you're 78. I know you're out there again. you got your theater in Branson. I, I guarantee you that just from this interview, there are a whole bunch of new people that are going to look you up on iTunes and start buying your back catalog because, man, you make us all feel good because you <laughs> feel good. And we want to wish you the best heading out to bring your great music and your many fans across the country. And who knows, maybe we might even get a new album one of these days to our thanks to the great Mickey Gilly. Good job, brother. If you're in need, won't you stand, stand by me? Up next, why boudoir photography is big with boomer women who've chosen to strip away the stereotypes of age. This is Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps. Taking a walk, making a smoothie, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. And by The Legacy Life Project from Macbeth Studio, preserving family history, stories, and memories for generations to come by creating personal video biographies of your loved ones. Everyone has a story worth preserving. LegacyLifeProject.com This is Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton with a question. How many times have you wished you could see what you look like through the eyes of somebody else? You know, to kind of get a different perspective of how you stack up, how you come across. Well, you can look in a mirror or you could look at yourself in photos because photographs can be extremely revealing. And if you happen to be dressed in a very revealing manner to begin with, well, sometimes you can see a whole lot more. I think. I know where you're going. It's why more and more women are signing up, not just for your typical portrait sitting, but for boudoir photography. 
Who's doing it? Mothers, even grandmothers, some who are very proud of how they look and others who really aren't quite sure but are adventurous enough to want to get a special gift for that special someone or even just for themselves. In the hands of a great photographer, boudoir photography can be a great self-esteem builder and a whole lot of fun. We went along to watch a shoot at a place called Ashira Photography and found women who never even dreamed of being in front of a camera, shedding some of their clothing and some of their inhibitions also and coming away with a whole new respect for themselves. Well, this is our main shooting area, the bedroom set. Zebra chair, high fashion living room set. We have props, guitars, rings and pearls. I get my camera prepped and ready. I have a theme song. Don't you wish your girlfriend was hot like me? The expression less is more has never been more true. Women are taking it off to turn it back on. Boudoir photography is hot in more ways than one. And it's not just those young, skinny 20-somethings. It's women in midlife and beyond who are giving their all, well, just about, to prove that age is irrelevant. People look at a woman over 60 and think, she's halfway dead, you know. She's got one foot in the grave, and the best part of her life is over, and that's just not true anymore. Still, it's something Lynn Flieger never thought she'd do. I toyed with the idea of, for a while of doing it, um, but I thought, no, I'm not going <laughs> to subject myself to that. But I came away feeling like, hey, you know what? I'm still desirable. I'm still sexy, and it, and it really made me feel good. Feet closer to you. <laughs> There are those who would say some things are better left to the young, but the proof is in the pictures. This just makes you feel like you're really, really a special person again, like you're really something special. I mean, when she was showing me the shots that she took, it was just like, that can't be me. (laughs) You look hot. That's me? Whoa. Things that I felt so unnatural doing, like she would say, oh, act naturally. Yeah, uh uh-huh. I got a cramp in this leg. (laughs) But... When I saw the pictures, it was amazing. And oh, how times have changed. Well, maybe a little. Do you get that a generation ago, 60-year-old women would never oh, be never, doing never. I mean, even now, I haven't told anybody that I did this. Nobody, not my sister, nobody knows that I did this. Why? Because of the stigma attached to it. What I will do is when I get the pictures... Then I'll tell them I did it. I can't make people understand that that boudoir photography is not pornography. That perceptions out there that, you know, it's, it's going to be sleazy, it's going to be campy, and it's just not. I try to bring out the woman. It's not about the background. It's not about the set. It's about showing sensuality and beauty about her. Because an arm can be sexy, an elbow, um, a leg... Um, can be sexy. You don't have to be a men's magazine, um, because most women think, oh, when you say boudoir and they're sexy photos, they're men's magazine. No, it's totally the opposite. Kalisha Wilson of Ashira Photography was doing fine shooting weddings, but when she found boudoir photography, her future flashed before her eyes. I love it. I like making women feel good about themselves, and most of them come to me and say, oh, I don't look good. I don't take pictures well, and I'm like, honey, don't worry about it. When I'm finished with you, you'll be supermodel. You know, I try to build their self-esteem because 
I've been there um, after my second child. Um, I was humongous, bigger than I was now. So I can see in my head, I know how women are feeling, you're self-conscious. You don't want to go in the dressing room. You don't want to look at yourself in the mirror. And to help build their confidence up, even if it's just for like a 30-minute to an hour session, really makes a difference in a woman's life. Are you nervous about this? I'm a little bit nervous, yeah. Gail Lotse summoned her courage and put her fears aside to commemorate a milestone. This is a big day for me, (laughs) that's for sure. I've never done anything like this. Um, My husband and I are getting ready to celebrate our 30th wedding anniversary. So I was kind of trying to think of some special way to uh, celebrate. And, uh, well, I kind of thought maybe I could (laughs) immortalize myself and um, have a little uh, photo album prepared and um, give it to him for a wedding anniversary present. She's also a mom in her 50s who believes sensuality has nothing to do with age, something her finished photos would certainly tend to support. Why is it important to see yourself like that? Well, you got to feel good about yourself, you know. You have to enjoy your life, and, you know, I just don't want to give up anymore, you know. There's a lot of life left in me and, and people my age and older than me even, too. So if you feel good about yourself, I think that you can enjoy your life a little bit better. And boudoir photography is affordable. Packages usually begin in the $200 range and can include full makeup and hairstyling. Lingerie is often available for purchase, and the photos can be displayed in a variety of different ways. And for the people who would say, you'd never catch me doing that. Oh, don't say that. Don't sell yourself short. Go ahead. You can do it. If I can do it, you can do it. Every woman needs to know that they're beautiful. Every woman needs to know that they're sexy. Oh, wow. And before you think your wife, your mom, or your grandmother would never do this, you should realize that's exactly who is choosing to step in front of the camera. Anyone and everyone. Anyone who loves themselves. And even some people who don't like themselves because it will make them love themselves again. It will make them realize that they're lovable, they're sexy, and they're a beautiful person. You feel like a million bucks when you walk out of there. You really do. So cool. One of the things all the women we spoke to shared is they were all pretty nervous about booking a boudoir session, but it actually turned out to be kind of fun. But those nerves do come back while you're waiting to see the pictures. And that actually, Bill, is one of the things that photographer Kalisha Wilson says is her favorite part of the job. She says most women are so critical of themselves that when they finally see the photos, they're surprised at how good they really do look. And she also says their husbands, well, they kind of like it, too. Let's face it, the lives we lead these days are so busy, so full of pressure and stress that it's very rare that we have the chance to sit back, to think about where we've been, and have any kind of a vision of where we need to be. Enter Key Howard, who is a guy who has been around the block a time or two, and he's got some things to say to remind us of what's really important in our lives. Some people, in fact, call him the next Paul Harvey, and it's kind of hard to argue with that. He's here again to offer a bit of wit and wisdom that he hopes will make you stop and think, ain't life grand? Over the years, I've made a habit of collecting witty sayings by famous people regarding their personal attitudes on growing older. George Burns said, 
I was always taught to respect my elders. But now I've reached the age where I don't have anybody left to respect. <laughs> he also said, retirement at 65? That's ridiculous. When I was 65, I still had pimples. Lucille Ball, one of my favorite all-time comedians, said, the secret of staying young is to live honestly, eat slowly, and lie about your age. My friend Ernie Borgnine said, I knew I was getting older when I took my dog for a walk, and I couldn't keep up with him. So I swapped him for a turtle. This one by Vanessa Redgrave is so true. No one grows old by living, only by losing interest in living. Francis Cardinal Spellman said many years ago, uh, you've heard of the three ages of man, youth, age, and you're looking wonderful? Bob Hope once said, age is something that just doesn't matter unless you're a cheese. And finally, Chief Justice Oliver Wendell Holmes said, men do not quit playing because they grow old. They grow old because they quit playing. Until next time, this is Key Howard. Ain't life grand. Up next, some surprising tips to increase your chances of living to a hundred will reveal some secrets from centenarians themselves. This is Growing Bolder. Support for Growing Bolder provided by The Center for Health and Well-Being, now open in Winter Park. Wholeness, fitness, and medicine together in one convenient location, offering programs and services to promote healthy living and positive aging. More at yourhealthandwellbeing.org. Sign up for the Growing Boulder Insider Newsletter, delivered to your inbox every week. Be the first to see our latest interviews, stories, and tips for making each day count. Sign up today at growingbolder.com. One of the most interesting things that, that, that I think Bill and I like to do on this program uh, and something that very few others even dare to try is to do live interviews with people who are over 100 years old. We've probably done more of those on the air than anybody. Centenarians, some of the most fascinating people alive. And apparently, Bill, we're not the only ones who think that no, way. And we love this, Mark, because our next guest is enthralled by them as well. And he's learned the same lessons we have. If you really want to understand what it takes to live 100 years, Years, why not ask the people who have done it? Let's say hi to the author of the book, Celebrate 100, Centenarian Secrets to Success in Business and Life. He's a great guy. His name is Steve Franklin. Steve, how are you? Hi, Mark and Bill. Thank you guys so much. I'm doing wonderful. Thank you. Better than I deserve. And thanks for having me on your show. So where are you these days and what are you doing? I'm in Dallas, Texas, getting ready to go on another TV show. Everybody's interested in growing older and bolder like y'all. I love the name of your program, so I'll be on TV here in just a few minutes. That's awesome. And, Steve, yeah, just to be clear, you're not a gerontologist. You're not a longevity or an aging expert. So what drew you to wanting to meet and even try to understand 100-year-olds? Well, I met a lady when she was not. I'm a former college professor, so I've written textbooks and lots of research articles and all that. Uh, but no, I'm not a good gerontologist or uh, wasn't a centenarian expert. I like to think now after having interviewed over 500 of them, I'm getting close to you guys. 
Um, but uh, she invited me at age 94 to her 100th birthday party six years later. And I thought, well, they sure are great. I said, yes, I forgot about it. Six years later, she calls me up and says, are you coming to my party that I invited you to six years ago? And so I went. I flew out to Lincoln, Nebraska from Atlanta, Georgia, had the most marvelous time. Asked her all about growing up in the Great Depression, you know, through the Roaring Twenties and Great Depression. And as I flew home, I said, you know, I got two things. One is, what if a lot of the answers to a lot of the challenges facing us today and tomorrow, this entire generation are found in the authentic wisdom of the past, resident in these people we call centenarians? And secondly, the bigger question is, what if we fail to go out and capture it and share it with the younger generation? Because Lord knows we need it. And that's why how it all started. And so I just got to interviewing them and videotaping them and it just... Everyone just was so intriguing and interesting. It just kept going and going and going. That's been going now almost eight years, 500-plus centenarians. And so uh, it's just been a great journey. What a great mission you have. And and I should note for the record, Bill and I have not interviewed 500 centenarians, <laughs> so, so you beat us there. But what we do is we interview them live, which a lot of people say is crazy. But you know what we've found? You know, who wants to live to be 100 if you're just sitting in a wheelchair and can barely move? The the active centenarians, the ones that are, you know, still have a passion for life, are engaging, they're exciting. And, and if their ears still work, if they can still hear, they're always great interviews, aren't they? Oh, listen, absolutely. Now, you know, a few of, my, a few of the centenarians I interviewed, uh, uh, you know, were, you know, not out there playing tennis and, and bowling, and, but, but I did interview a number that were still water skiing at 100. And, but most of them, the large percentage, I say over 90%, like you say, very mentally active, socially active, either playing cards, playing dominoes, playing bingo, involved in, in still dancing, lots of walking is most popular exercise among centenarians that I came across, although none of them have ever been in a controlled uh, exercise program or a controlled diet program. They just, modesty is their key word. So they are incredibly interesting. You're right. They are not sedentary. This idea of people think, oh, my gosh, if you're 100, you're sitting around, you know, watching flies on the wall. Very, very inaccurate, as you guys know, and I'm so glad you do interview them because they are. That's what kept me going, to be honest with you, was I kept thinking, well, gee whiz, maybe I'll keep hearing something so redundant, I'll just sort of get bored. I've never gotten bored. You know, Steve, one of the many things that are cool about you, and of course we're talking to Steve Franklin who wrote this great book called Celebrate 100 that you got to check out. Steve, you spent your life surrounded by college students in that environment. Then you go totally to the other end of the spectrum. Do you see, <laughs> do you see the potential for those two to maybe create a bridge? Yeah, you know, that's really, that's the driving goal, uh, Bill, is uh, this sharing this wisdom with the younger generation. Come on, we get so much stuff in the media today that, to my, in my opinion, just, uh, as, as my centenarians would say, poppycock. We need to hear commonsensical wisdom about money, about work, and about life from these people who've lived it well over a century. Because I tell everybody, all of us are a function. The book, all of us are a composite of the books we read, the people we meet, and the places we travel to and experience. But our quality of life is a function, I believe, what I've learned from the centenarians, of financial fitness, work wellness, and what I call healthy habits. And uh, if you balance those three, as they have done so well, you know, I, I, I think there's this wonderful bridge that the younger generation uh, you know, is interested in. I've talked to a lot of millennials over the last year. And I've spoken to a number of millennials. They're very interested in, golly, 100, that's unbelievable. Yeah, I'd like to live to be 100 if I'm active and, and, and are okay financially and health-wise. So it's a wonderful bridge and keeps me at So I guess I literally am burning both ends of the candle now that you, now that you make me think of it. And it's so exciting. 
And, you know, it's so encouraging, too, um, Steve, because, you know, you've touched on this. Uh, the three things you mentioned, the three categories that, that lead to longevity, have absolutely nothing to do with genetics. And, and it is encouraging when you find out that people who live to 100 and live the lifestyle that you've just described, they're black, they're white, they're Asian, they're male, they're female, uh, they eat meat, they don't eat meat, they, you know, they, they do all sorts of things. Uh, everybody's got a shot if they can uh, you know, learn to do those three categories that you mentioned. No, I really believe that because, you know, what we did was the first question, uh, excuse me, the third question, I'd, the first question I'd always be, would be was, did you ever think you lived to be 100? And by the way, less than eight people out of 500 thought they lived to be 100. So I'll tell everybody, you better plan on them to be 100, being count on being living to be 100, because a lot of you will. Second question was, what's the greatest thing about being 100? Tons of answers there. And the third question I would ask them is, what do you believe, Bill? What do you believe, Mark? Not what the doctors are saying. What do you believe is the secret? for you getting to 100 plus. And, and then we just, that was an open-ended question. So we took all the answers and we categorized them into, into sections or, or we tried to label them. And the, and the number one by far came out to be attitude. Genetics was like number six. They believe that their attitude, I'd say there's two kinds of people in the world that I've learned from centenarians. People that wake up in the morning and say, good morning, God. And people that wake up and say, good God morning. Uh, <laughs> And these are people that are good morning God people. They embrace life. They celebrate life. They enjoy each day at a time. And they don't blame anybody else with their problems. They don't have an entitlement mentality. And I really believe that is the key. This whole idea of mind over matter, I believe it. Now, they've had illnesses. They, some of them have had cancer and heart attacks and things like that. But they have just persevered through it. And I tell everybody, none of us know how long we're going to live. I mean, come on, let's face it. But I think you improve your probability. If you can learn some of these things about money, for instance, you know, staying out of debt, getting out of debt, paying cash for cars and paying off your credit cards every month and diversifying your investments and work, you know, finding what you love to do and giving it all you got and working as long as you can and then developing healthy habits, you know, with, let's say, exercise and food, which is basically eat what you want, but just, just eat modestly. You know, don't overdo it. I did not meet an obese centenarian. So I just think that's just commonsensical stuff. It's not rocket science, but young people. Uh, and need to hear it, and myself included, over and over and over again, because that you know repetition is the mother of all learning. Well, you're so right about that, Steve. We all need to hear that message. I remember growing up thinking that, man, if you were dealing with an older person or you were around them, that it was kind of a depressing thing. But you hear in Steve Franklin's voice, you hear the passion and the excitement that he's got from writing this book. It's called Celebrate 100, a fascinating look at the lives of centenarians and the many lessons we can all learn to give us all a better chance of getting there as well. Our thanks to Steve Franklin. Good job. Up next, a breast cancer survivor shares the lessons she's learned from all of what she calls life's little detours. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Winter Park's new Crosby Wellness Center at the Center for Health and Well-Being. More than just a gym, it features unique medically integrated programs, activities for all ages and skill levels, and free group exercise classes with memberships. More at CrosbyWellnessCenter.org. Stay connected to Growing Boulder for daily doses of hope, inspiration, and possibility. Find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for our latest stories and motivational pictures.
I'm Mark Middleton, and that young man over there is Bill Schaefer. And, of course, this is Growing Boulder. Time now for our surviving and thriving feature. You know, with the right kind of care and support and, of course, the right attitude, it's possible to not only survive life's greatest challenges, but to actually thrive in the aftermath. And our next guest certainly will attest to that. A diagnosis of breast cancer started her on a journey that has altered the focus of her life entirely. It's a disease that certainly has a way of getting your attention and making you think about things you never really thought that much about. So much so that she has now written two books about it. Yeah, pretty impressive books, too. The first was called God Never Blinks, 50 Lessons for Life's Little Detours, if you can consider that little. And she followed that up with another great one called The Miracle, 50 Lessons for Making the Impossible Possible. Are you starting to get her attitude here? She's a New York Times bestselling author, newspaper columnist, and inspirational speaker, and most important, she is surviving and thriving after her cancer. Time to say hi to Regina Brett. Hey, Regina. Hey, thanks for having me on the show. Hey, can you tell us about, do you still talk a lot about your cancer story? You know, I do because it really sharpens and shapes your life. And uh, every day I wake up and every day is a get-to. If I don't have to go to work, I get to. I don't have to do the yard work. I get to. And and that's how cancer really shapes your life. It's it's, uh, kind of a lens of gratitude how you see the world. It is amazing. We hear from many cancer survivors that in a weird way, and, and certainly not literally, but, but, but in the rearview mirror, it, it, it has, for many of them, become the best thing that ever happened to them because it changes their priorities. It changes their focus. It leads them to where it appears you are now that you've learned how to savor every moment, Some of, something that all of us need to figure out how to do ourselves. You know, cancer really does it. I tell, I tell people I've had cancer, no more homework in life. If it's something that is too much of a struggle and it's unpleasant, it's my life. I don't want to spend my life being unhappy. And how you spend hour by hour is how you're spending your life. Regina, you speak just like your books. Everything you say is like a nugget I want to write down and, you know, <laughs> put where I can see it. Now, so let's go there. Your first book is God Never Blinks, 50 Lessons for Life's Little Detours. What kind of lessons are in that book? You know, God Never Blinks came about because I wrote these 50 lessons life taught me, and many of them were ones that cancer taught me. And one of my favorites is burn the candles, use the nice sheets, don't wait for a special occasion, every day special enough. Mm-hmm. Too many of us have candles we never light, we, you know, we dust them because we don't want to use them up. And I tell people, life is to be embraced right now. And you followed that book up with your second one, uh, your, your most recent, which is called Be the Miracle, 50 Lessons for Making the Impossible Possible. How can we become the miracle ourselves? What's, what's the takeaway from that book? You know, I think one of the greatest lessons in that book is magnify the good. Too often we kind of put our little invisible magnifying glass on every flaw in our spouse and our kids and the neighbors. And if you just would say, you know what, where is the good in this? Let me find the blessing in this. Because I think the miracles are really tucked in the messiness of life. They're not in the wonderful, magical sunsets. Sometimes it's in the 27-year-old son who's still living in the basement, and that person becomes the gift in your life because he came back in the house. Yes, Regina, isn't it awful that sometimes we need to have like a, a debilitating disease to start thinking about this stuff? Well, I think we get so caught up in that uh, we've got to succeed in life, and success means a college degree and a career and the 401K and the nice car and on and on. And I think that cancer or a divorce or a death in the family, it really stops everything and says, what am I really living for? Am I living for my resume or am, am I living for my family, my inner values? 
You know, Regina, we've talked to enough people like you, and, and I'm certain there's not too many like you, uh, but but survivors, you know, and we've, we've learned that bad things can happen to good people. But, but that said, what do you think is the difference between those who just survive and those who actually thrive? What has led you? What, what do you have that, that other people need to know? You know, I think it's that things are going to happen. Life is going to happen, and it's going to be messy. But when it happens, to pause and say, okay, Tucked in this is the gift. Let me look for the gift. And you will always find it if you look for it. When you sit in the waiting room with your cancer diagnosis, you can talk to another patient and brighten their day, and it ends up brightening yours. It's in these small moments that we can create our own little miracles. Boy, Regina Brett is who we're talking to here. And obviously, you've gained quite a bit of wisdom along the way. But I guess that's no surprise since... Well, I think I saw on the Internet that you're an amazing 90 years old. Isn't that something? <laughs> Phil, that's a great story. You know, if somebody took my 50 life lessons and put it at the top, Regina Brett, who is 90, I'm actually 57, but it's kind of freeing because now I don't have to worry about getting old because people already think I'm old. <laughs> and didn't that start like 10 years ago? So now you've got to be 100 or something. I, I must be in my 100s, yes. <laughs> I don't feel a day over 89, I tell people. <laughs> Um, fortunately, Bill and I have not had to struggle with cancer, but, uh, you know, we've talked to people that say, you know, get in shape for your cancer battle now, get in shape for old age now, because to a large degree, uh, the extent of your recovery, the type of treatment that the doctors may recommend has to do, uh, with how physically fit you are. Do you think that's true? Is that something you encourage everybody? Oh, that's something I really learned through cancer. I remember the oncologist telling me, he said, we can treat you aggressively because you're in such good shape. And I thought, what if I wasn't? What if I was a smoker? What if I was overweight? What kind of treatment would I get? Would I get less than? So it really reminded me to take really good care of this body. Most of us take better care of our cars than our bodies, and we have our body for our entire life. You know, as you said, you're a newspaper columnist as well, and one of your most talked about articles had to do with a very difficult decision kind of along these lines that your daughter made. Yes. Yes, unfortunately, in my family, we have the uh, genetic mutation BRCA1, so our chances of getting breast cancer are up to 87%. My daughter, unfortunately, got the gene from me, and at 29 years old, decided to have her breast removed. And it was really a tough decision because, you know, she was healthy, didn't have cancer. And yet, she didn't want to wait to get cancer and risk losing her life, and she wanted to start a family. She's now 36, has three wonderful children, and doesn't regret it at all. And Regina, you've been cancer-free for 15 years now. Does that genetic profile that you have make you predisposed to to other kinds of cancer? Do you ever get over the fear that it could come back uh, somewhere, some way? You know, I think anybody who's had cancer, you have this little wake-up call, and anytime you have a headache for too long, you don't think Advil, you think brain tumor. It's just sort of like you go to the cancer thing. And then as the years pass, you realize everybody's going to face something in life. And you learn to let go of that fear and know that for somebody else it might be an accident on the way home from work. Cancer gives you a wake-up call to live life now to the fullest. And I don't know if I'll you know, live a long, long life. I hope so. But it's going to be worthwhile every single day, no matter how long it is. What are you working on now, Regina? Well, I have a third book I just finished. It comes out next year. It's going to be called, well, I can't give away the title yet, but it's going to be about work and lessons for the workplace finding those little moments at work that you can turn into a gift for somebody else and kind of how to find the job you love and love the job you have. I mean, you've done that. You never realized that you were going to go down this path. You didn't sit down as a teenage girl and go, I want to write these books like I have. Oh, no, no. My life was pretty messy. I got pregnant at 21. I wasn't married. I dropped out of college. I worked a lot of zigzag jobs, you know, things that just paid the rent. And every one of those jobs, it looked like a dead end. 
became something I needed to do to be a journalist. You know, the kind of person that gets involved in life and isn't afraid to take chances, that's, that's what Regina Brett has done. And, and look where, you know, life seems to take care of you if you set sail out in it, have a good attitude, and, and observe everything you can. She's written two incredible books, the first, God Never Blinks, 50 Lessons for Life's Little Detours, and Be the Miracle, 50 Lessons for Making the Impossible possible. If not for you, get them for somebody who needs a good shot of motivation and inspiration. You can find out more at reginabrett.com. Our thanks for a great, great interview. Up next, how she overcame witnessing the murder-suicide of her parents to go on and teach millions how to live without fear. This is Growing Boulder. Support for Growing Boulder provided by Advent Health, introducing the Feel Whole Challenge, a 21-day program offering big improvements through small steps, like a daily walk, making smoothies, changes that encourage whole person health. More information at feelwholechallenge.com. Subscribe to Growing Boulder magazine, now with more information, articles, and photos than ever before. This quarterly publication is unlike any other, filled with the kind of inspiration you need to live your life to the fullest. More information at growingbolder.com slash subscribe. This is the most empowering show on the radio, Growing Bolder. I'm Bill Schaefer with Mark Middleton and Mark a generation ago. If you would have said to someone, asked them what they did for a living, and they told you they were a life coach, you would have looked at them <laughs> like they had two heads. Life coach? Today they are everywhere. There's millions of life coaches, but folks, you can forget about them all because we've got a woman who has to be the best of all. Oprah certainly thought so. She's been a best-selling author four times. She's the founder of the Fearless Living Institute. And one more thing, she won a Daytime Emmy Award for her role in changing people's lives on the show Starting Over. She is the vivacious, coquettish Rhonda Britton. Hey, Rhonda, how are you? Oh, I love being with you two. <laughs> well, this is so fun. Hey, we... and, and you know, you're right. I've been a life coach for almost two decades, and nobody knew what it was. And now there's everybody calls themselves that, but a lot of people we found cannot deliver the goods, which is why we love you. You know, people hear that introduction that we just had and say, wow, there's a woman who has to have everything going for her, who's probably lived a wonderful life from day one, but you went through something so horrific that no one would have blamed you if you never recovered. Can you share some of that story with us, Rhonda? Uh, yes, absolutely. And, you know, you're right. I mean, it's, um, it is, has not been all rosy. And uh, I went through a very horrific experience in my life. And as most people have, you know, we've all gone through our own personal challenges. And, and my, my worst day of my life was when I was 14 years old and it was Father's Day. And, I, my father, my mother were getting divorced, and my father came over to take us to brunch. And instead of taking us to brunch, uh, my father took out a gun, and he started screaming at my mother, you made me do this, you made me do this, and he fired. And I started screaming, Dad, don't. Dad, what are you doing? Don't. And he took that gun, and he cocked it, and he pointed at me. And I absolutely believed to the core of my being that he was going to shoot me, too. And... My mother, with her literal last breath, looked up and saw that gun in my face, 
and screamed, no, don't. And with my mo- my father in that moment realized my mother was still alive and took that bullet intended for me and shot my mother a second time. That bullet went through my mother's abdomen and out her back and landed in the car horn. And for the next 20 minutes, all I heard was, eh. and then my father dropped to his knees, put the gun to his head, cocked it and fired it. And within two minutes, I was the only, the sole witness of witnessing my father murdering my mother and committing suicide. And I don't know how other people would respond to that, but what I did is I blamed myself. I mean, I was the only one there. I'm the only one that could have, you know, grabbed the gun, said something amazing to get him to wake up, stopped him, jumped in front of my mother. Nothing. I did nothing heroic to save my parents that day. And that haunted me for 20 years. I literally blamed myself. And with that came alcoholism. With that came three suicide attempts. And, and it was that suicide attempt, that last one, that third one, when I didn't die, that I realized that I am not good at killing myself and I better figure out another way to live because I can't keep living like this. I can't keep hating my life. I can't keep hating myself. I can't keep blaming myself. I can't keep living in shame. I can't keep beating myself up every minute of every day. I can't keep this up. And I was living two lives, you know. If you would have met me, Bill and Mark, you would have never known this was going on inside of me. I was a great fake. Oh, everything's great. I'm fine. Oh, yes. I got straight A's. I got a full ride to college right before I flunked out, you know. So I was living that double life externally pretending I'm fine and internally unable to feel good about myself, unable to believe in myself, blaming myself, beating myself up, thinking I'm not worthy, love myself, are you crazy, you know, have confidence, are you nuts? I was just trying to make it through the day. And it wasn't until the that I really, that third suicide attempt when I really realized um that I'm not good at killing myself, that I really have to figure out another way, that I was, that I started turning the corner and making different choices, bolder choices that were, that I was scared the bejeebers to make. You know, in our movie of the week, Mind, Rhonda, it happens like a, the snap of a fingers that, oh, she's, she's depressed, she's sad, she has these suicide attempts, and then, oh, she sees the light, changes, and everything's different. <laughs> yeah, this that's, is... That's not quite how it works. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I mean, this was every single day for, for 20-something years that you went through these feelings of self-hate and, and confusion, yeah. and, and God, is there anybody in the world that, that doesn't have tons of sympathy for you, but that, that didn't help? How did you turn that around? How how did you get out of the hole instead of just decide to cover yourself over? Yeah, well, you know, I covered myself and that didn't work, right? Like trying to, that's the thing, you know, beating ourselves up doesn't work. It doesn't give us the effect we want because we don't disappear here. We're here to live, right? We're here to be our true selves. We're here to live the life we're born to, right? And so, you know, it really was that third suicide attempt when I, I really did you know, they put, just FYI, when you, when you try to kill yourself three times, but finally that third time, they put you in a psychiatric ward for evaluation. <laughs> and I was in a psychiatric ward for evaluation. And um, they realized I wasn't insane. I was just lost, confused, you know, low self-esteem, et cetera, et cetera. And so they let me go. You know, they released me after three days. And it was, it was that moment that I realized that I, nobody was coming to save me. And it was a, oh boy, that was a hard moment. Boy, nobody was coming to save me. Because part of it was, if I can just stay broken enough, 
that maybe somebody will notice and love me enough to save me. And again, did I say this to myself every day? Of course not. Did I think, you know, did I think this? No, of course not. But it really was what I was wanting. And, and I also had nightmares every night for 14 years. So, so when, I, when, when I got home from the hospital, I said to myself, Rhonda, you can either keep living like this or you've got to change your life. And then the journey began of choosing myself, healing myself. And, yeah, you're right. It wasn't a snap of a finger. It's like, and the next day I woke up smiling and life was awesome. No, that was a journey, right, to, to heal yourself from the past, to choose your present, to start creating a new future takes commitment and it takes a willingness and it takes a lot of, you know, a lot of effort. And so, you know, it's, it's why I do what I do today. Why did I become a life coach? Why am I one of the first life coaches that, that's actually, you know, I started the profession 20 years ago is because I know how hard it is to choose yourself. I know what it took me every morning to decide to choose something for myself. So that's for, that. So, so the first, let me tell you the first exercise I did for myself when I got out of the hospital. Um, I, I, I said to myself, I have to start at the beginning. And I started thinking of, okay, what is, a, what is something I can do for myself just to make myself feel okay? Like, just not, I'm not saying feel great. I'm just saying, like, am I worth living for? Am I worth, am I worth this life? And so I took a calendar, just a plain calendar, and put it next to my door, okay? And every day I put a gold star next to that, next to, on, that, on that day, you know, whatever I did anything good, I put a gold star on that calendar. And at the end of a month, our calendar, Mark and Bill, were filled with stars. And that gave me hope that maybe I was worth saving, that I was worth doing this for, that I was worth choosing. And Rhonda. That gave me the spark of hope. And because of that, those gold stars, the spark of hope, it launched a whole line of these books called Fearless Living, this institute, Fearless Living, that's changing other people's lives because she's paying it forward. She became a reality show icon, one of the most interesting, inspirational people around despite what she's been through. Seems to make things better for other people afraid of things that keep holding them back. Check her out at RhondaBritton.com. That's E-N, Rhonda Britton. Our thanks to the amazing Rhonda Britton. Well, that's it for now, but remember, folks, Growing Boulder doesn't stop here. In fact, it's really just the beginning. Check out Growing Boulder TV on public television stations around the country, and we invite you to subscribe to our one-of-a-kind Growing Boulder magazine, packed with inspiring stories, tips, tools, everything you need to help make the rest of your life the best of your life. Yeah, you know what? It's also the perfect gift for anyone you know who needs a little inspiration to get off the couch and get into life. Just go to growingbolder.com slash subscribe, where you can also sign up for our free newsletter. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook as well. Folks, we will see you next time right here. Growing Boulder is a production of Boulder Broadcasting. All rights reserved. This program was recorded at Growing Boulder Studios in Orlando and is available as a weekly podcast on NPR One, iTunes, Spotify, Google Play Music, Stitcher, and TuneIn. It is written and produced by Jill Middleton, Mark Middleton, and Bill Schaefer. Executive producers are Jackie Carlin, Robert Thompson, and Emily Thompson. Technical director is Jason Morrow. Production manager is Michael Nanis. 
chief audio engineer is Mac Dula, and our most important team member is you. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram to keep growing bolder every day. Crimson flames tied through my ears, flowing high and mighty trapped. Countless fire and flaming road, using ideas as my map. We'll meet on edges soon, said I. Oh,